Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jolyn. And we've been saying the Apostles' Creed uh, because it really is important what we believe. Amen. I mean, the Apostle Paul thought so. I mean, usually at the beginning of his letters, he talked about right doctrine, and then at the end of his letters, he talked about right duty. And like we're finishing up this little letter to the Ephesians, this six chapter letter. And in the first three chapters, he talks about our wealth that we have in Jesus Christ, the incomparable riches of his grace. And then in the last three chapters, he talks about our walk with Christ, that we are to walk in unity and walk in purity and walk in love and walk in wisdom. And last week, we started this walking in victory, talking about the armor of God. And we're going to finish it up today. We're going to finish up the book of Ephesians today. And um, I can just picture the Apostle Paul chained to a Roman guard, looking at all of his armor and thinking, that would be a great sermon illustration, you know? And he started looking at the belt, and he thought of truth. You know, it's important what we believe, and being truthful is very important. It's like a belt that holds everything together. It's like uh, that breastplate, it's like righteousness, covering your vitals, you know, and, and the feet, those beautiful feet of that Roman guard is like the gospel of peace, and it reminded him of Isaiah 52, verse 7, and that shield is like, you know, you put the shield up because the devil's always throwing darts at you, the shield of faith, and then the helmet, you know, of salvation, so important to keep your head 
uh, covered. And you ask a football player that. You know, those helmets are important, especially these days when everybody's getting concussions, right? And then the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that's our offensive weapon. Jesus used that sword in the wilderness. Remember, he kept saying to the devil, it is written, it is written, it is written. But I want to tell you something. You know, the, the, it says, therefore, right at the begin, beginning of uh, Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, and the therefore, you know, what's it therefore? Therefore, because we are all in a spiritual battle, put on this armor that I just mentioned. And I want to tell you that the whole armor of God, and I'll make it real simple for you, is a picture of Jesus Christ. Yeah. The whole armor is just a picture of Jesus Christ. You stay close to Jesus and you're going to have all the armor on. Believe me. Because Jesus is the truth. He said so, John 14, 6. Jesus is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus is our peace. We covered that in Ephesians 2, 14. Jesus is faithful, which makes our faith possible. Remember he said in Galatians you know, the Apostle Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by, by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Jesus is our salvation. And then Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the armor. That's why John says so clearly in John 14, You know, you need to stay connected to the vine because apart from Christ, we can't do anything. So it's good to talk about all these pieces, but just stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. You know, let him rule and reign in your life like we just sang about. But today I want to kind of zero in on things. I want to talk about evangelism specifically. I want to talk about that one piece of armor, the beautiful feet you know, ready uh, the gospel of peace. And evangelism can be a real scary word for some people, right? I mean, we all have ideas of what evangelism is, don't we? My decision to focus our attention on evangelism comes from a growing, deepening desire to see God convert more unbelievers through our ministry here at Calvary. And I want to see more and more people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ I mean, just about every earnest and committed Christian, if we are honest, we are grieved by our weakness in this area. Did you know that? There is not a zealous Christian in this room who feels content with their effectiveness in personal evangelism. We feel guilty, don't we, about our timidity? We regret missed opportunities. Sometimes we feel bad and sad about our lack of compassion for the lost and fear that some program of evangelism is going to be pushed down our throats on us against our wills. And one of the most freeing things is to just simply get this out in the open, get it out on the table, and just admit it. Just admit it. And then to notice and understand that it is a universal experience, even of the most devoted, committed servants of Jesus Christ. Many of you think I'm a lot more evangelistic than I am. If you only knew the opportunities I've let go over the years. And so I don't come with a rod today to beat you up about anything. I come with a longing. I come with a dream. A longing that I would be changed by my own message and become more fruitful in God's hands. 
And that whatever in my life would hinder the saving work of God, it would be removed. I want there to be a new touch of power, not only on my preaching, but also on my personal contact with unbelievers. I want fresh guidance from the Lord concerning the scope and the focus of my pastoral labor to know if I'm spending my time in a way that would just maximize my life for Christ's glory. In short, I want fresh bread from heaven's breakery. I want fresh oil and fresh fire. That's my longing because I don't think I've got that much time left. My dream is that we would be a church that would be freed from the paralyzing effects of guilt in regard to personal evangelism. That all of us would find some natural outlet for love toward lost people in this city. That there would be a deep desire to reach the lost, that we would develop a bunch of bridges into Calvary Church from many pockets of unbelief, that our personal sense of the reality of Jesus Christ would be so deep and it would be so confident and so satisfying that we could not keep from commending him to others and that the power of Christ would just rest upon us with this unusual effectiveness that people would be surprised by the power of the Holy Spirit and surprised by the voice of God and awakened to the, pre, uh, the present tense reality of God. So I don't come with a rod this morning to beat you up. I come with a deep longing for myself and, and with, a, with a, what I think is a happy dream of what it might be like if God would make us A healthy, happy, free, authentic, loving, powerful, evangelistic, outreaching, soul-saving church. And if you share this longing for me and perhaps for yourself, and if you have a similar dream for Calvary, would you devote regular, earnest time to pray this year? And I want to suggest praying and fasting on Thursdays. And it might be just for one meal on Thursday. It might be for the whole day. But start praying for more of an evangelistic breakthrough uh, through the word, through the ministry of our church in regard to evangelism. Ephesians 6, 5. And I believe it will happen. You know, I, I believe it will be a reality. I believe he's going to do it if we seek with our, all our hearts, if we seek him with all of our hearts. So Ephesians 6.15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Another version says, having shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Before we focus on the word readiness and its place here in the armor of God, I want to say just a word about the gospel of peace, the gospel that we have for the world, the gospel that we have for our lost father, dad, mother, our sister, our neighbor, our classmate, or colleague, or fellow worker, or some unreached people group somewhere in the world, the gospel that we have, it's good news that God purchased peace peace by the death of his son, and he offers it to sinners who believe in Jesus. The gospel of peace. Paul wrote to the Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have a time out with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the good news that God's omnipotent wrath against sinners has been taken away through the death of Jesus for sin. And everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who trusts in Jesus 
is reconciled to him and made right with him freely by his grace. And in place of war or enmity comes peace. And there's nothing better. I tell you, there's nothing sweeter in all the world than to be at peace with God. And so do you have it? Do you have peace with God? Sometimes commentators point out how strange it is that Paul should mention a gospel peace right in this passage dealing with spiritual warfare and conflict and armor, you know? But it isn't strange, is it? The aim of our warfare is that people would accept the terms of peace that God holds out, specifically faith in Jesus. And the only reason there's any conflict at all is because the power of sin and the powers of Satan are dead set against making peace with God. Romans 16, 20, I love this verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Look at Ephesians 2, uh, 13. Just go back to Ephesians 2, 13 to see how Paul develops this gospel of peace for us. It says, in, in verse uh, two thirteen of Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And in verse 16, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Then verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you uh, to those who are near. And then verse 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, the good news of peace is that when Jesus Christ died and when Jesus Christ shed his blood for sin, two kinds of war, two kinds of enmity were overcome. The enmity between God and repentant sinners was brought to an end. And then the enmity between races and factions in Christ were brought to an end. So Christ became our peace. And that is the gospel's peace because Jesus is the prince of peace. He himself is our peace. You want to know the answer to racism and all these factions that are going on right now? It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And we've heard it by the grace of God and we have believed it by the grace of God and we have been saved through it by the grace of God. And now Paul says in Ephesians 6.15 that the readiness of this gospel of peace is to be put on like shoes as part of our spiritual armor. And with your feet fitted, having shod your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. So let's think a few minutes about this readiness as part of the whole armor of God. I want us to look at Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, to uh, just set the context a little bit before we talk about readiness. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12 provide the context having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, having our feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And I think there are four things that we can learn from this context. Number one, and I, I mentioned this last week, all of life is war. All of life is war. From the cradle to the grave, life is war. 
Your soul, your mind, your body, your family, your career are a field of conflict until Satan is finally thrown into the lake of fire. Our peace with God will have to be a vigilant peace. And the main reason, listen, the main reason the church has lost its desire and dependence on prayer is because we really don't believe that. We do not believe that all of life is war, that we're in a battle. Although, because there's no urgency, there's no burden, there's no vigilance. So number one, all life is war. Number two, not only is all life war, but the war is against the spiritual evil powers. And we, t- we touched on this a little bit last week as well. Listen, the war that we are in is not a war with flesh and blood, but of supernatural evil powers. And what amazes me about Paul's words here is not, that, not what he affirms. <laughs> it's what he denies. And I'm not surprised to hear him say that we wrestle with, you know, these evil, angelic, demonic, supernatural powers. What surprises me is that he says in verse 12 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's what surprises me. And I want to say to the Apostle Paul, I want to say, Paul, you have been stoned. You have been left for dead. You've been beaten in prison. How's that for the abundant Christian life? You've been, you've been beaten in prison, run out of town. You've been shipwrecked. Your flesh has been torn. Your blood has been spilt. And that has hindered your ministry again and again and again. And your flesh, the flesh of others has torn your flesh. And the blood of others has boiled against your blood. What do you mean you don't wrestle against flesh and blood? It's people with their hands and, and with the stones and with their rods and with the chains that have cost you dearly and tested your faith almost to the limit. And I think Paul would answer something like this. You're right. Flesh and blood is real. And it can be very evil. But what I mean is this. Whenever someone's flesh attacks me or someone's blood boils against me or my way is hindered by man, something else is going on, something deeper something bigger, something more terrible, something more sinister, more destructive than meets the eye. I don't mean flesh and blood can't hurt or hinder the cause of Christ. I mean that the prince of the power of the air is more dangerous than any of his subjects, and he must be overcome in every instance of conflict or the battle is lost. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? He says, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Some versions say the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sure, the sons of disobedience in their flesh and blood reality can oppose us in our spiritual warfare, but it's... It's more decisive to defeat the spirit that works in them and the power, the the prince of the power of the air that they follow than simply to wrestle as though all you're dealing with is just like human nature. We're talking about a spiritual warfare here. And so the first thing we need to see in verses 11 and 12 is that all of life is war. And the second thing that we need to realize uh, in this conflict, if it's going to be successful... Uh, will be fought with the, we're going to have to fight it with the supernatural forces. And our weapons are prayer and the word. That's our weapons. Prayer 
and the word. And so if they're not engaged, the victory is superficial because the wars against these supernatural evil powers. The third thing we need to see in verses 11, 12, and 13 is that there's a danger of falling in this battle. Three times Paul tells us to take pains, really, to stand. That is not to fall. And verse 11, stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, therefore put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. The exhortation to stand, it means there is a danger of falling in this battle. And the devil is is wanting to blow us away with Hurricane Dorian-like winds. And Paul writes, put your armor on so that you can stand and not fall or get blown away. The fourth thing we see in these verses is that God has made provision for us so that we can stand and not fall. And that's the provision of armor. And God is able, the Bible says in, in Jude 24, he's able to keep us from falling. And the way he keeps us from falling is by fitting us for a successful combat. And so if your aim is to persevere in the Christian life and not be defeated by the wiles of the devil and by the schemes of the devil, then you must put on the armor that's described in these verses. And this is how God means to to keep us safe until the final day, till the day of salvation. So that's the context in which we read about having our feet fitted, having our feet shod, you know, with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And notice that we are not shod with the gospel. The gospel is the word of God. And the word of God is our sword, according to verse 17. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. We're not shod with the gospel, but we're shod with, listen to this, we are shod with the readiness of the gospel. What does that mean? The readiness of the gospel. You need to pay attention to this. Readiness. I think it means let your feet be ready to move with the gospel. Like Philip, the evangelist in Acts chapter 8. Philip took this pre- I mean, God put, took this preaching deacon named Philip out there in the desert. And over there, there's this Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. And God said, Philip, you go join yourself to that chariot. Go to that chariot and stay near it. And the Bible says that Philip ran. He ran. His feet We're ready to move with the gospel, and we need to be ready. And there are going to be times when we need to run so fast. We have opportunities to serve, opportunities to preach, opportunities to share, to counsel, to care. Be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. Feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. Philip's feet were ready. The time was short. But the time was right, and at that precise moment, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch got together, and if you read Acts chapter 8, Philip led him to the Lord. Had he argued with the Lord, I think that opportunity would have gone by. There's a sign on a barrel of fish that said, if not delivered in three days, never mind. Opportunities all around us. Think about the people whom God has sovereignly allowed you to rub shoulders with. You know, in your sphere of influence, 
And some of them are going to hell 90 miles an hour with their foot on the accelerator. And Philip shared the gospel with that Ethiopian eunuch and tradition tells us and some historians tell us that that man, that Ethiopian man opened the gospel to all of North Africa, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because Philip was obedient to the Spirit's call and went and joined himself to that chariot and he led that Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. So Ephesians 6.15 means let your feet be ready to move with the gospel. Feet are for moving from one place to another. And if you put on shoes of readiness, then the idea would seem to be readiness to do what feet are ready for, specifically moving. And if the readiness is readiness of the gospel, it probably means to, to move with the gospel. Move with gospel power. Move with with gospel purposes. And let me show you two or three reasons why I think this is the right interpretation. It's almost certain, I think, like I said at the beginning of this message, that Paul had in mind a verse from the Old Testament. It was just stuck in his mind. It was Isaiah 52, verse 7. You know that one? I think we, we sing it as an old chorus. You know, it goes, uh, you know, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that brings good news. Proclaiming peace, who who brings good tidings, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here we have a picture of feet, a picture of feet, of the feet of people who are, who are running to bring good news. And the good news is the good news of peace. And surely this is where the Apostle Paul got his picture. This is where the Apostle Paul got his imagery from Isaiah 52, verse 7. And if so then the readiness of the gospel of peace is surely a readiness to move with the gospel, a readiness to tell the good news and to proclaim peace and to say our God reigns, to say Jesus is Lord. And here's another reason I think it's what Paul has in mind. And I think this is really interesting. Notice in Ephesians 6 that the passage on spiritual warfare comes right after the passage on Husbands and wives and children and parents and, and masters and slaves. And well, if you turn to Colossians chapter 3, it's kind of like a parallel uh, chapter of Ephesians. Uh, Colossians 3, near the end, you see that the same pairs are dealt with. You know, husband and wives, Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Children and parents, uh, 20 to 21 of, of Colossians 3, and then masters and slaves, Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. But then instead of a paragraph on spiritual warfare or spiritual armor, the Apostle Paul calls for vigilant prayer. And then look what he says in verses 4 and 5 of Colossians 4. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your speech, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer everyone. Here in a context much like the one in Ephesians is an exhortation to be alert, to be aware of how you can be the salt of the earth, to answer unbelievers' questions and to make the most of the time for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. And this is what I think Paul means by the readiness of the gospel of peace, being prepared, being alert, and being ready to talk about the gospel. Five years from now, when you're in a cafe and somebody asks you what circumstances or events led you to Jesus Christ, are you going to be ready to say something? 
You're going to be ready to tell them the good news? Look at 1 Peter 3.15. The very word ready, the same word is used in the same kind of an exhortation. It says, always be ready. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So coming back to Ephesians 6.15, I have one last observation. The armor of God is given to us believers to help us stand against the devil. And it's introduced as defensive armor. Verse 13 says, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, how is how to stay standing, I think, is the issue. The, the, the Dorian-like hurricane winds of the devil are coming. So what can we conclude from the fact that the shoes of verse 15... Are the, are the readiness to move with the gospel of peace. I conclude this. Listen to this, you Bison fans. A ready offense is an essential part of a successful defense. And how true that is. Ask a Bison fan. Ask the Bisons after the 57 to 10 win over Butler yesterday. Ready? A ready offense is an essential part of a successful defense. Giving away the gospel. Listen, giving away the gospel is one of the best ways. It's one of the best ways of really experiencing its power in your own life. The best way to taste the power of God for your own soul is to give the gospel away. And it's that great old truth that the Lord himself said, he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. The more ready we are to move with the gospel, the more life and power, and I believe the more joy and security we will know in the gospel. In giving, we receive. In dying, we live. And in telling the gospel, we hear it again and again and again and again with, oh, so much more depth and power and joy. We're going to sing at the end of this service. I love to tell this story. I hope you do. I hope you do. That's the goal of this message. I love to tell this story. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, proclaiming peace, announcing news of happiness. Our God reigns, our God reigns. Are you ready to tell the story? Are you ready to tell your story? Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf lived from 1700 to 1760 in what was East Germany. History calls him the rich young ruler who said yes and when Zinzendorf was 20, only 27 years old, he took into his home a single Moravian refugee. And before long, Zinzendorf had 300 Moravian refugees living on his estate, and he became their spiritual leader. And they all lived in a village called Hernhut, Germany. You can go there today. Under Zinzendorf's leadership, they all prayed together, they studied God's word together, they grew spiritually together. And yet there were some major divisions. There were some major religious disagreements, and the community was divided into these factions, into these warring factions. And after a night of prayer, the community got together for Holy Communion. And it was August 13th, 1727. Something happened. 
There was a dramatic transformation. Zinzendorf said that they learned to love each other. The Holy Spirit baptized them in love. And they would never be the same. Historians call it the Moravian Pentecost. And they started a prayer vigil. And they designated a place of prayer in the village. And they prayed in groups of three in one-hour increments. So at any given hour, three people were praying together in the place of prayer. And there are 168 one-hour time slots in a week. And they filled all 168-hour time slots with three people per hour. And check this out. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, three people were always praying in the place of prayer. Not for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, but for 110 years. Think about that. 110 years. It's a 110-year-long prayer vigil. Do you know the kind of supernatural power that is unleashed when you pray for 110 years straight? The Moravians' hearts began to burn with the things that burn the heart of God. Their hearts began to burn for the unreached peoples of the world. People who had never heard about Jesus Christ. And this small group of 300 Moravians over a 15-year period sent out 70 missionaries who went and lived among unreached peoples, learned their language and culture, and then told them about Jesus Christ. And one of the churches that the Moravians started sent out 200 missionaries on their own. And one of the Moravian missionary teams voluntarily sold themselves into slavery so that they could identify with the slaves and share the gospel with them. Wow. (laughs) You know what their slogan was? May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. When they would go off on the boat to all these countries, they'd be chanting that to each other. May the lamb that was slain Receive the reward of his suffering. The Moravians started the modern missionary movement. The Moravians, they were nicknamed the Savior's happy people. And they established mission bases in West Indies, Greenland, India, South Africa, Ghana, uh, Ceylon, Turkey, as well as various parts of Europe and the New World. In that 110 years, they sent out over 2,150 missionaries They also sent renewal teams to preach revival and unity in Christ to churches in many nations, even even going to Rome to preach to the Pope. And many historians believe that the Moravian movement was foundational in other awakenings and revivals in the 17 and 1800s, and it was Peter Bowler. If you know your Methodist history, you know about Peter Bowler. Peter Bowler, he was a Moravian who told John Wesley what it meant to be justified by faith, to be born again. And it was at a Moravian meeting at Aldersgate Street that John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. Are you ready? Let's pray on Thursdays and fast. And really believe that we're in a war and that our prayers depend on the victory so that we can be ready. We can be ready to move with the gospel. So disciples can make disciples, can make disciples, can make disciples, can make disciples. And that's the end of Ephesians. (laughs) Go get them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for 
uh, the joy that we have, the peace that we have, in spite of the fact, you know, it sounds like we're in this battle, and we are, but Lord, we're not miserable. We have, we have peace in the middle of the storm. Lord, uh, we have supernatural protection, just like you protected the, the Hebrews uh, in Egypt when all the plagues were coming, Lord, uh, and Satan was throwing all this stuff at them, and yet they were protected. Lord, I thank you that we can put on that truth and the righteousness and, Lord, the, the helmet of salvation and, and these, these shoes, Lord, that we can be ready. We can have beautiful feet that'll go where you want us to go and, and share the gospel, Lord, with the spheres of influence that you've already given us here in this city. And so, God, I pray that more and more of us would take advantage of what you've given us, Lord, so that we can be effective in winning the loss to Jesus and making disciples who can make disciples. Now, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to worship you through giving and to bring to you uh, your tithe and our offering, Lord. So we bow before you and thank you for the ministry of the word that can go out from each one of us, Lord, not just from the pulpit here, but for, from, from each one of us. Lord, you have called us to go and to make disciples of all nations, Lord. Help us to be like those Moravians, uh, sold out for you, in love with you. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm praying that we all have some beautiful feet. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, teaching them to observe whatever Jesus has commanded. Remember, he's with you. He promised he'd be with you even to the very end of the age. Amen.